Mathilden Dursalin was originally from a part of Germany called Rhineland. While Rhineland was named after one of the more prominent rivers of its area, modern brethren may know the name of a different river better, the Eder, where in 1708, eight Christians, five men and three women, baptized themselves with full submersion and the Church of the Brethren was founded. This is the same area where Mathilden heralded from, albeit a century later. She married a man named Johannes, who became a conservative Lutheran pastor, later a superintendent in a part of Germany, uh, which falls under Poland's border today. On August 20th, 1886, Mathilden and Johannes had the first of their three children, naming him Paul, Paul Tillich. Hey, Dunker Punks, this is Matt Riddle, pastor of the Arlington Church of the Brethren, uh, one of the sponsors of the Dunker Punk podcast in association with On Earth Peace. Welcome to our special four-part summer series about a topic of faith near and dear to my heart, theopoetics. It doesn't matter if you don't know the term, we'll learn and explore together, hearing a variety of names, voices, and metaphors over the next four episodes. Each episode will dive into a different aspect and further our journey of this strange word of theopoetics as we weave together a journey through a few different people's stories. We'll either hear from or about people like Paul Tillich, people like uh, Scott Holland, whose voice will be featured throughout the series, people like myself, people like you. For this summer series isn't about our brains. It isn't about learning about God. It's about people like you and like me. Real people with real personalities. Real faith that makes space for our very real questions. Even our real doubts. It's about seeing beyond the limitations of our language about God that doesn't ignore but rather listens closely to our anxieties and our pains. It's about giving ourselves permission to ask questions, to feel joy, to find new language and metaphors that ignite fresh experiences with the divine. So please, I invite you, bring your whole self to this series. Bring every curiosity, passion for life, question and doubt you can muster. It's going to be an exciting journey together. I hope you stick around to learn more about Theopoetics. And with that, let's get back to Paul Tillich. Paul's father's career was busy and caused the family to move around a few times. So Paul was shipped around to different boarding schools. Uh, he encountered some humanist ideas in those schools, which contrasted with his father's more conservative beliefs. He also experienced loneliness and isolation in these schools. So uh, wrestling with all of these many things, Paul turned to the Bible, as he did so often throughout his life. Just one year shy of Paul Tillich graduating in 1904, his mother passed away in 1903, 
when he was 17. I feel a kinship here uh, as I lost a parent at 17 as well. I can say it changes you and is not fun. And yet, uh, Tillich was also smart and driven, and so within the next seven years, after graduating from high school, he had a PhD in philosophy and religion. In 1912, he was ordained a Lutheran minister, becoming a chaplain in the army of his birthplace, and uh, getting married not too long after that, in 1914. At this point in his life, Tillich had the belief in a God who was, as he described it, quote, a nice God who would make everything turn out for the best. Tillich believes that this view was not only his own, but widely held by many Germans at the time. If you caught the year he got married, your ears may have perked up. Having nothing to do with Paul Tillich's life, uh, but his country was gearing up for war. Now, we may think whatever we want about Germany's role in what we now know as World War I, but the young men in Germany didn't have that similar benefit of hindsight. And so as their home country geared up for war, quoting from Tillich again, many young men signed up to fight in a spirit of near ecstatic joy, exalted by nationalistic fervor. Armed with this nationalistic fervor and the sense that God is a nice God who makes everything work out for the best, Tillich went to war as a chaplain. Yet even in the worst battles, being a chaplain did not save Tillich from fighting. To say nothing of overseeing mass grave burials afterwards. In addition to these awful experiences at war, uh, he began to view the war itself as evidence of broken systems of capitalism and culture, which are just going to lead these to these repeated patterns of war after war, even after this one gets settled. More might follow, he thought. So it's no surprise that his belief in this nice God who would make things work out for the best crumbled. Indeed, such a belief system has no place in a war zone. As Tillich later confessed in his own words, quote, actually everything worked out for the worst. We'll talk more about Tillich throughout uh, the next couple bonus episodes, uh, but I just want to note his response to trauma and all the more to war is pretty common. The Nazi-resisting Christian martyr, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, wrote to a friend from his prison cell during the war that, quote, we are proceeding towards a time of no religion at all. Simone de Bavour, a Jew who lost her faith in a provincial god at Auschwitz, wrote, quote, it was easier for me to think of a world without a creator than to think of a world with a creator loaded with all the contradictions of the world. By far not the only Jew who voiced such things, Rabbi Richard Rubenstein wrote books on the topic, many books, including one titled After Auschwitz, History, Theology, and Contemporary Judaism. Rubenstein differed from de, de Bavour, believing that, you know, God still exists, but the covenant was broken. Because how could God let such a thing happen as the Holocaust? How could God let such a thing happen is a question that comes to many people for many traumas. Such a question could probably always be asked in war zones. A veteran of more contemporary wars, Max Harris, bluntly and honestly talks about the trauma war can bring as it relates to crises of faith. 
quoting here from Mr. Harris, I think it's human nature to question your faith when you experience something horrific. I thought God can't exist. If God was up there, he wouldn't let this stuff happen. That's the crisis of faith, questioning. If God's up there, how could he let such horrific things happen? I didn't realize it at the time, but when I was asking that question, I was asking God for an answer. When I didn't get one, I got angry, angry at God. If you noticed, I edited one word in the middle of that quote. You're correct. I didn't even bother reading the second half of the quote, uh, which would be impossible to edit out words. Harris just hurls uh, expletive after expletive at God. I read the quote one time to my next door neighbor uh, verbatim. Uh, he's a good friend and human. He's 19 years into a career with the Air Force and has served in multiple war zones. When I read him the quote, I also read the second half, every word as printed. I was curious how he'd respond. He nodded with full confidence and said, oh yeah. And not only have I said those things, but I don't know a single veteran who hasn't. He was also fascinated with his neighbor, a, a pastor of a historic peace church who is reading such influences as veterans swearing at God. But I think that's the point. What remains when our simplistic ideals fall away? How do we think about God after we experience significant traumas or losses? Or look at the injustices of the world and think, where is God? And how can we as people of faith wrestle through these topics and yet not abandon a belief in God? How can we ask ourselves the difficult and tough questions, wrestling with our difficult and tough experiences, and yet still find a faith that speaks to our needs, that offers us strength, meaning, and hope? Well, that, my friends, is why we're here in this bonus podcast series to discuss the God beyond the God. In the next few episodes, we'll learn about a term maybe new to you, but whose concept is welcoming and inviting to all. Theo Poetics. Mine's kind of fuzzy, it's hard to stay focused. There's a million other things that I know I gotta notice. Rated on all sides by politics and pride. And status updates in my virtual life. What should I say or do? If all I wanna be is good. Wanna see the better days yet to come and live and learn the love, love. What should I say or do? If all I wanna be is good to become a true love conduit and see peace and pursue it. Questions to myself, but hope someone's listening. What should I say or do? If all I want.
is good. I want to see the better days yet to come and live and learn to love, love. What should I say or do? If all I want to be is good, to become a true love conduit and seek peace and pursue it. We are going to tear these walls down. Thundering Jericho sounds from our bodies, our mouths, our voices are found. We are gonna tear these walls down. Thundering Jericho sounds from our bodies, our mouths, our voices are found. We are gonna tear these walls down. Thundering Jericho sounds. mystic Meister Ecker, who in fact influenced brethren, pietist, and many others, though his background was Roman Catholic. He taught us to pray in a variety of ways, including, O God, beyond the God I name. And he also at times said, when you pray, you might also pray, O God, deliver me from God. So it's, O God, beyond the God I name, and at times even, O God, deliver me from God. We're joined now by Scott Holland, Slabaugh Professor of Theology and Culture and Director of Peace Studies at Bethany Theological Seminary and Earlham School of Religion. Uh, thanks so much for that great introduction, Scott. Uh, God beyond the God we've named, as well as this quizzical prayer, God deliver me from God. We'll get more into that in the next few episodes. Uh, Scott, we just heard about Paul Tillich, uh, particularly about how he started his life with this belief in a good God who would make everything work out for good. That belief was challenged for him when faced with difficult situations or trauma. Uh, for him, it was World War I though many others have uh, similarly developed questions about their faith or experienced a similar uh, complete crumbling of faith as he did. In the case of Tillich, though, he discovered as he lost his faith, in one sense, uh, something yet remained. I'm wondering about uh, the prayer you just offered, God beyond the God we name, if this offers us an interesting way to discuss what Tillich and many others have experienced in war or outside of war, um, when they when someone experiences something uh, they used to label as faith is starting to dissipate or change, and yet there's something yet sort of beyond. Um, in short, is it, is it possible to lose a faith in something we previously named God? sort of being delivered from the God we used to name, yet experience something deeper. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, Tillich 
developed a much more expansive understanding of the divine, a God beyond some of the traditional categories that he had inherited as a good Lutheran and good Lutheran German pastor. And in fact, Tillich even expanded this metaphor of God in different ways. Not only was God beyond but he imagined God also not simply as a being, but as the very ground of being. So Tillich is working with a number of, of metaphors that speak to the reality of divinity, a divinity freed from some of the earlier uh, linguistic constraints that he had inherited and lost as a result of the terrors and tragedies, the deaths and destructions of World War One, I wonder if you might help me explore this a little more. Uh, when I say God, am I not referring to God? Or is somehow the word only a placeholder or a symbol or image pointing to something deeper? Well, I like to think that we are certainly naming God in human language, in finite language, but God, as we understand the divine, is infinite. And therefore, we name God in the language that we use. Augustine once said, um, we speak so as not to remain silent, but often when we speak of the divine, we do but stammer and stutter. Uh, recognizing that if God is infinite and we are using finite language, there's always something more. There's something beyond. Therefore, we use metaphorical language most often when speaking of God. You know, the first time I heard the saying, uh, God beyond the God we name, I wasn't totally sure what to make of it. Uh, it took me two whole years, probably, for it to get under my skin. And, and that was a couple of years ago now, though. So it really has gotten into my, my bloodstream and my faith in very deep ways. I very much now relate to what you're saying. You know, God, we are referring to something infinite, something deeply and infinitely complex and expansive. The word God is so so small, in a sense. It's just a word. The point isn't um, this being that we've named, right? The point is something far beyond even the name. It's not about eliminating God. As much as it, it's trying to get to understanding God accurately in a way that is profound and deep and opens us up and is expansive, it's entering into a mystery, right? Am I, am I describing this well to you? Very much so, yes. Yes. Well, we know that Tillich lost his faith in wartime, and he wasn't alone. Uh, many of his eventual theological contemporaries did too, either in that war or different world wars or the Holocaust. Uh, but we also know that there's a lot of ways for people to experience a loss of faith whether in a literal war zone or a figurative war zone, even an actual or figurative peacetime. I think, I think we're living in an age where, if we're being honest, 
Many people have questions about faith. Many people are experiencing sort of this initial loss of something more innocent or naive than what we believed when we were younger, or maybe our parents passed on to us to believe, and we're questioning it now. So two questions, Scott. In your experience with students and non-students, how widespread is this phenomenon? How many people are struggling with what feels like a loss of faith? And, and second question, what do you, in your experience, what are some inciting stories or questions leading to this? Well, I think for some, there is a realization that bad things happen to good people. And in fact, in life, there's a lot of blessedness, but there's a lot of brokenness. And often when tragedy or trauma encounters one, there are, I think, honest questions about the divine, about God and, and the goodness of God. And I think also as human knowledge increases, some of the more limited languages that we use to name God seem to restrict the possibility of, of mystery beyond a mere rationalism. And so often what persons reject is not God, but particular models of God that they have inherited, particular metaphors of God. And so there's a philosopher by the name of Paul Ricoeur, and he talks about the second naivete. And Matt, you mentioned um, moving beyond um, a naive position. And for Paul Ricoeur, he believed that there comes a time in the spiritual life, in the life of faith, where one might turn from earlier constructions, images, models of God, and perhaps for a time be seeking and searching, and then one can come to a second naivete, which is not as naive as a Sunday school faith, but it is nevertheless a faith. It's a second um, naivete. And so I think many today are finding new ways to name God and to reimagine and rediscover their own faith through the language of theopoetics, moving away from an earlier theologics, which is often grounded in a rather doctrinaire approach to God, to a theopoetics, which invites the imagination. It brings the metaphor and it suggests that in many ways our faith is closer perhaps at times to art than to a precise science of ethics. And so many students are coming into our program at Bethany and ESR really hoping to reimagine, rediscover, and 
see differently and otherwise uh, the nature of I think of you've faith. offered us some really interesting language to understand that original and somewhat perplexing prayer, God deliver me from God, uh, that you offered at the opening. We're almost praying in a sense, real God, deliver me from my first naivete. Deliver me from that scientific version of faith, the version we got maybe even from churches we don't attend anymore. Real God, true God, deliver me from all of that. Yeah, that's exactly it. I think uh, Eckhart, the great mystic, was, was suggesting we need to be delivered from some of these notions of God that in many ways are attempting to, to place God within a particular iron cage of reason or tradition or doctrine and open us to the possibility of God beyond this God. Deliver me, God, from God. A poem by the Reverend Laura Martin. I will give you back your God who orders plans that include children with cancer, planes colliding into mountains, the single gunshot killing the mother. I will give you back your idea that God called another child angel into heaven, that we are never given more than we can hold. See Auschwitz, Rwanda, Syria behind the shut door near you. That everything happens for a reason? I will give you back your God, who I could never worship. Your prayers that I could never pray. Your hymns I could never sing. Instead, I will take the one who fell three times while making a way. Instead, I will take the one who cannot always end pain, but always holds us within it. Instead, I will take the poured out one, the gaping odd one, the Eastering one, the one immersed within our doing, our healing, our living too.